Thanks very much, Ruth. Good afternoon, everyone. Really good, as Paul said, to have you with us today. Are there some people you find who bring out the worst in you? You want to like them, you want to get on with them, but they constantly irritate you, and whenever you're with them, you seem to say the wrong thing, and that makes things even worse. I'm sure we've all come across people like that. On the other hand, are there some people who bring out the best in you? They're really encouraging and friendly, and they throw a real interest in you, and actually you want to do well in things just so that you can please them. I'm sure we've all come across people like that as well. Quite a few years ago in my work, I had a new boss, and as new bosses do, he came in and he wanted to make changes. And I felt that the changes that he imposed on us were unhelpful and were really quite demotivating for the staff. I didn't feel it was for the good of the department or or indeed of the company. He in turn, I think, found me quite negative and perhaps felt I was a bit awkward and probably he was right in that. That same year, I was involved in a big project. It was one of these projects where if you don't get it right, you're going to get a very big fine from the regulator, at least potentially even get shut down. It really needed to be done right. And I was responsible for delivering half of that project. And I got on really well with the person who was in overall charge. He made it clear that he trusted me, he valued my expertise, and he was happy to let me get on with my part with as little interference as possible. And that project was a great success. I flourished under the trust that was given to me, and we delivered what we needed to. So my end of year appraisal that year was quite interesting. On the one hand, I had a boss who clearly didn't rate me and didn't think much of me, On the other hand, he was being told by the project that I'd done a good job and we delivered. And I can remember saying to him during my appraisal interview, I'm not a different person when I'm doing the project from when I'm working for you. In one sense, of course, that was absolutely right. I was exactly the same person. But actually, in the way I approached it, in my feelings about it, in my attitudes, you could argue I was a different person. One was bringing out the worst in me and making me feel in many ways quite resentful and unhappy. The other was bringing out the best in me and giving me the opportunity and the freedom to do well. Well, I think that uh, these pictures are a quite good way for us to get into Romans chapter 7 and 8 that we're beginning to look at over the next few weeks. Because Paul says in these chapters there's something that brings out the worst in us and there's something that brings out the best in us. What brings out the worst in us is the law, and we'll talk about what the law is and means in a minute. And what brings out the best in us is the Spirit, the the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent uh, to his disciples. I quite like equations, let's have a couple of equations that I think probably help illustrate that. Paul says the law plus the flesh, or, or the sinful natures, as said in the version of Ruth read, our, our, our natural uh, inclinations leads to sin and death. That's very clearly in the passage that Ruth read to us. The law plus our sinful nature leads to sin and death. In other words, the law brings out the worst in us. But Paul also says that the grace of God plus the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads to righteousness and life. In other words, the Spirit 
brings out the best in us. If we know that God has worked in our lives through the Lord Jesus and by his grace we've been forgiven for all of the wrong that we've done and we want to please Jesus, then through the Spirit we can do that and we know that we have righteousness and we have life through faith in Jesus. Now just to, to plan ahead for the next couple of weeks in chapter 7, we're going to be looking mainly at the law and then we go into chapter 8 and everything really brightens up and that's about the spirit and the difference that he makes in our lives. But today we're thinking particularly about the law and about our relationship with it. So maybe worth a minute just thinking about what do we mean by the law. Paul is writing in the context of people, mainly as readers who are Jews or certainly knew the Jewish faith, and he is writing about the Jewish law. The law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and that's recorded for us, particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament, but actually throughout the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the law that was given uh, to the people of Israel. Now we might say, well that's not very relevant to us today, in one sense it's not, Um, but so we could extend it a bit wider, and we could say it is instructions about how we should live, that that we might try to keep to the letter, uh, and try to uh, be good, and to please God through the things that we do. That was the, the, the law was about, you kept the law, said God, you will live, if you don't keep the law, you'll die, the problem being of course, that no one could keep it completely uh, until Jesus came. The first thing I want to say about the law is that the law is good. Now you might read the verse we've read today and quite a number of others in the book of Romans and think this law, it was a really bad thing. It held people back. It wasn't a good thing. If you're tempted to think that, can I suggest that you go home and you read either Psalm 119 or if you feel that's going to take a bit too long, read Psalm 19. Because both of them speak very positively about God's law. Let me just read a few verses from these Psalms. So Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. So the psalmist tells us that God's law is good if we meditate on it, if we love it, then it's a good thing and it can bring great delight to us. But the problem was that the experience of people of the law didn't always reflect that. And particularly by the time Paul was writing, the time of Jesus and and that kind of time, the the law had come to mean something that perhaps was a little bit different. It was something that was imposed on the people. We read about the Pharisees and the the Gospels who who would add to the law, would interpret the law, and it became a real burden for people. And although the law itself is good, Paul tells us, that it brings out the bad in us. The law is good, but actually because we have a sinful nature, because our natural inclination is not to do what is right and to obey the law, it brings out the worst in us. So a few verses that Paul uh, writes a bit earlier in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. When we see the law and the kind of standards that the law uh, imposes on us, 
we recognize that we can't keep it and we become aware of just how sinful we are. And so in the next verse after that, Paul says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. That righteousness is through the Lord Jesus. But later on, chapter 4, Paul writes, the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul, in the the next few verses in Romans chapter 7, is going to write a bit more about the law and and how just knowing the law and knowing what we shouldn't do in in many ways encourages us to do the very things we wouldn't want to do because of the sinful nature, because of our natural inclinations. So the law, says Paul, is good, but it brings out the bad in us. The law brings out the worst in us. And so, being free from the law, Paul says, is a really important and valuable thing. And that's what these verses that we're looking at this morning are especially about. Paul is saying to us, you are not bound by the law, and you have to look and say, have I got this right, have I got that right, and am I justified before God for all that I have done? Rather, you can have a freedom to be free from the law and to please God through his Spirit. So let's just walk through these verses quickly, uh, and then we'll bring together a few applications. So in verse 1, Paul states a rather obvious legal principle. The principle is, if you die, you're no longer subject to the law. And that could apply to any kind of law, not just the Jewish law. If you die, you're no longer subject to the law. It is, I think, for many people who have been victims of crimes, um, a, a, a great burden that the people who, who, who committed these crimes against them weren't discovered until they, they had died and they were beyond the reach of the law uh, and therefore couldn't in this world uh, be punished appropriately for what they'd done. Because they died, they were beyond the law. So once you die, you're not subject to the law. Paul then illustrates this by writing about marriage and about the lifelong bond that is marriage, but that stops on death. I want to say two things by way of warning before we start looking at these verses. The first thing is we shouldn't treat this as an allegory, it's an illustration. So we shouldn't look at everything that Paul says and think this has some kind of direct application over to my situation. In particular, if you think through what Paul's writing about, he talks about a wife whose husband dies and she's free uh, uh, from the law of marriage. And then he goes on to talk about us dying and being free to be related to Christ. So it's the person who's died now rather than the person who's still alive in uh, uh, in the relationship. Paul isn't making a mistake or getting muddled here. He's just using a simple illustration and then taking something on from it. Second thing I think we need to be careful about is this is not Paul expounding everything you need to know about marriage. He's just using a simple illustration, and in particular, he's not saying anything about divorce. The Lord Jesus gives us teaching on divorce, and particularly divorce is valid in the case of where there's been unfaithfulness in the marriage. Paul is not in any way contradicting that. He's giving us a general principle that applies to marriage. He's not trying to give us all the details and all the rules that might apply. Having said that, what does his illustration teach us? So Paul says, when you're married, you're married for life. In the way we put it these days, you're married for better 
for worse. Some of us are blessed with happy marriages and with wonderful spouses with all of our moments, but generally marriage is very happy. Other people, marriages are not so happy. And marriage can become a real burden. Perhaps the person you marry changes, or, or, or perhaps you realise you made a mistake at the beginning and they weren't quite the person you thought they were. And that is very sad when that happens, but it doesn't break down the basic principle that marriage is for life. Now, if we expand a little on that, we can imagine Paul thinking here about a woman who's got into a marriage that has turned out to be quite unhappy. It's turned out to be quite unhappy because her husband is so demanding. He's telling her all sorts of things that she has to do and can't do, and she finds it a real burden. She just can't do anything that seems to please him. However hard she tries, she falls short and she's not able uh, 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 to give him the satisfaction that she really would like to. Paul says that person in the marriage, which in many ways is unhappy, if the husband should then die, she's freed from the marriage, no doubt mourning her husband, but at the same time perhaps feeling liberated by by the fact that she's uh, free herself now, and particularly if she finds someone else she falls in love with, she's free to marry them. Marriage is for life, but when one partner dies, the other partner is free to marry again. Again, very obvious and and in many ways quite straightforward. So Paul then applies that. So verse 4 is key to the passage here. So Paul says to us, the law is like a married partner to us, or or was to, to him and to the other Jews. While the law still applied, while both were alive, if you like, they had to try to obey the law and to satisfy its demands, even knowing that they never actually could do it. Because the demands of the law were so strong and so against our natural inclinations, it was impossible to be completely obedient to the law. But, says Paul, there's been a death. And the death is not of the law, that, 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 that the law has changed in that sense. The death is of me uh, as a Christian. That as Paul has explained in chapter 6 and covers elsewhere in the New Testament, when we become a Christian, it is as if we died with Christ. Now obviously we didn't literally die with Christ with his body or on the cross. But nevertheless, Paul says, we have died to the law in Galatians. He says, I've, di- I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. Uh, and he says, now you have died in Christ. You have been raised in Christ. And we came across that in chapter 6. So you now belong to Christ. You don't belong to the law. You're not subject to the law. You belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, you can bear fruit for God. You are able to do what is right and pleasing to God and what is really helpful to others as well and will help them in their Christian life or help them to come to know God for themselves. You've died to the law, you're alive in Christ, and now your allegiance is to Christ not to try and do the letter of the law, to do exactly what the Old Testament law said, but to please Christ and to live for him. And so that is the new reality that we read about in verses 5 and 6. 
So Paul says, when we are, my verse says, in the realm of the flesh or in our sinful nature, and the, the sinful passions that the law aroused were working us. So we saw the law, we saw what we had to do, and we didn't do it. Because our sinful nature is so opposed to what the law demanded, we just couldn't keep it, we couldn't please God through it. But now, now, we've died to what once bound us, we've died to the law, and we've been released from the law so that we serve in the Spirit. And we serve not because we have to, because that is the thing that is going to bring us uh, forgiveness from God or, or make us please God uh, and be saved through it. We serve because we want to, because the Holy Spirit and our love for Jesus and our desire to do what he wants us to do helps us to do what is right rather than to do what was wrong as we used to in the past. The law is good, but it brings out the bad in us. We have been freed, says Paul, from the law by our faith in the Lord Jesus. And because of that, we are able to serve God and to please him and to live for him. Now, what does that mean for us? Let's talk for a little bit about me and the law. And I said at the beginning, for most of us, that the law of Moses isn't something that's on our minds. We don't spend our days going through Leviticus and Numbers and saying, am I doing exactly what the law says here? Am I being obedient to it? Of course we don't. So from that point of view, the law that Paul talks about isn't directly relevant to us. And yet it's not true either to say that we have no standards that there is nothing that should guide us and direct us in our Christian lives. Although we may say the law of the Old Testament it no longer binds us, as we read through the New Testament, we find that many of the things, almost all of the commandments in the Old Testament, are repeated in one form or another for Christians, because they are good. They represent to us God's way of living and how we should live for one another, and particularly for the Lord Jesus. And so if we're thinking about the law and how it applies to us, let's think about what we might do that is good, that is in keeping with what God wants us to do, and what our attitude to that is. So our first attitude might be what I've called guilty legalism. We might say, I see what the Bible says, I see the kind of instructions that God gives us here, I know in my heart a lot of what's right and what's wrong, and I need to do right so that I can earn God's forgiveness and have a relationship with him. I need to try really hard to do my best so that I can win God's favour. I've got a guilty legalism because if we do that, we're going to fail. As all the people in the Old Testament fails, and we have this long uh, catalogue of the failures of Israel uh, as we read through the Old Testament. If we have the same kind of attitude, we think I must do certain things, and if I do them, I will please God and everything will be all right. We're going to fail because we just can't do it. We're going to end up full of guilt and full of remorse and wondering what can we possibly do that will put things right. 
Trying to please God through our own efforts and to win our way to heaven is not at all what the Bible teaches us. Second issue we might have is what I've called false liberty. So we've got this chap who's sitting back in his chair and saying, I love this grace thing. Because I'm a Christian, because Jesus has taken all my sins on the cross, I can do what I like. I don't need to worry at all about God's command or what God wants me to do. It's all forgiven. I'm okay. And Paul, I think, makes very clear in these chapters in Romans that we're looking at that that is a totally false attitude. If we have experienced the grace of God in our lives, if we have come to the Lord Jesus and trusted him for salvation and for forgiveness from sins, we don't want to be keeping doing all the wrong things that we know are grieving to God these things that led to the Lord Jesus being nailed to the cross and suffering that awful death for us and being separated from his father as he bore our sins, we don't want to be continuing with that. We want to be doing what pleases him and to live better lives. And frankly, if we take the attitude, I can do what I like now because my sins are forgiven, we haven't begun to understand God's grace or what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian isn't all about doing what I like and ignoring what God might want me to do. It is about obedience, but obedience because we want to. That's the final thing in the application here, that there should be in us a joyful obedience. It should be like that situation I was talking about where I had the person who was running the project and he trusted me and he let me get on with things and I was really pleased with that and I did my best because I wanted to please him as well as to do good for the company. If we truly know the Lord Jesus, if our trust is in him, then we serve him and we do what is right Not because we have to, because we're looking at the letter of the law and what it says in the Bible, saying, have I got that right, have I got that wrong? We're doing it because we want to please Jesus, we recognize all that he's done for us, and we want to be like him. This person who came into our world, son of God, living among us, lived a perfect life, taught so many wonderful things, helped so many people, ultimately died on the cross for our sins and rose again. If we know him and we love him, we want to serve him and we want to become like him. Now, as we'll be thinking next week, none of us is going to become perfect in this world. We still are subject to sin. We still have that desire for sin that's in us. But nevertheless, our lives should be being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we seek to become more and more like Christ and to obey him and to do it not grudgingly, not because we feel bound by it, but to do it because we love him and because we have a real joy in him. The message of the gospel, the Christian message, is that we can't save ourselves. What we do doesn't save us. We don't become Christians by doing our best and by hoping that that's good enough. We're saved by God's grace, by the death of the Lord Jesus, by putting our trust in him and seeking to follow him and to live, and then to live for him. But it's the grace that comes first, the forgiveness for Jesus, 
and then the following. It's not that our obedience leads to salvation. Rather, the salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus should lead us to be obedient and to follow him. So the challenge this morning, I guess, for everyone here. First challenge is, have you experienced that grace of the Lord Jesus? Are you trying to do it all for yourself? Or have you come to recognize that it is only through Jesus, through his death on the cross, that we can have forgiveness and a relationship with God and then go on to serve him? And if you do know Jesus, if you have trusted him, where are you today? Are you still trying to obey laws because you have to and have a, a real a, 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 a difficulty in your Christian life because you're constantly worrying about guilt and are you keeping the, the particular laws in that, that you uh, think are important? Or have you gone the other extreme and think, well, I'll just do what I like and I won't bother about God or, or about his law? For the Christian, we should have that same kind of joy in the law that the psalmist had, but joy not in keeping the letter of the law, but in having the Spirit in us, helping us to obey and to become like Jesus and to represent him to others. Started with the situation from work. Perhaps I should tell you how it ended. I had that job for about a year. Uh, and then someone who was a bit more powerful changed things for me. My boss's boss recognized that it wasn't working out for me or, or, or for probably for my boss either. And he decided to move me on to something that was more appropriate for me, where I could uh, do better uh, uh, and could be encouraged in, in my work. He took me out of that situation and put me into a better situation. That's exactly what God does for us when we come to Jesus. He takes us out of the situation where we're stuck with our sin and perhaps we're trying to do good but failing in it. He puts us in a new position where we have a real living relationship with Jesus, like a marriage relationship, if you like, in the love and the care that is there. And in that relationship, we're able to do well and to flourish, but we do it not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to please Jesus and to be obedient to him. Straight all of us have that relationship with Jesus, that salvation that comes through him, and have a real joy in our Christian lives as we seek to serve him and live for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We recognize that some of these passages in Romans are quite difficult, uh, and in some ways quite obscure to us, uh, um, in situations that perhaps aren't directly applicable. But we thank you that your word is always valuable and helpful to us. And we thank you that you do give us the opportunity to experience your grace through the Lord Jesus, through his death on the cross for us, and then joyfully to live for him and to seek to serve him and to please him. We pray that all of us will come to know him if we haven't already, and then may be able to serve him and to live well for him. We pray now you'll be with us as we move into a time of communion, as we think particularly of all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. Help us truly to worship him and to give you our praise for him. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.